Hello and welcome to Red Rose Roots, a new series from Red Rose Reporting looking at the history of seats within the Red Wall. This phrase, Red Wall, I don't really like it. This is really a guide for people who want to understand the seats which failed to the Tories in 2019 or came close to it. So that way you can understand the issues and the characters involved. And as it's the first episode, we decided to start off with my home city of Wakefield. Yes, it's a city. Joining me to help understand this conundrum of uh, cultures and economics is, of course, Rob Clark. Hello. And joining us as our first guest is the Secretary of Wakefield Young Labour, Theo Biddle. Hello. Glad to be here. Cheers. <laughs> ah, it's great to have you here. Before we'd start off with Wakefield, and Wakefield is a place which is misunderstood quite a bit. As I said in the interest reel, definitely a city. It's been a city since the 1880s, but um, it's been inhabited since the Anglo-Saxon era. It's primarily known for a few things, one of which is by its medieval reputation, which is called the Merry City, which is a reference to the fact that Wakefield was kind of the late medieval version of Ibiza to a lot of people in England. You went there to get absolutely smashed. Um, the city was known for having cockfighting, bullfighting, and a string of pubs which would um, bankrupt any person. Although a person who visited the city in the 1550s noted that you could get um, royally drunk on 2D, which translates to about four pence in today's money. So, you know, not bad going. Wakefield's also known for being the centre of a few different conflicts. The most infamous one is the Battle of Wakefield in 1460, where the Duke of York was um, ambushed and uh, betrayed by his allies. But equally, it's also little less known for having the Battle of Wakefield in 1643. During the English Civil War, it was a royalist town and the royalists prepared to fight, but on the day before the battle, the royalist officer corps went out to the village green and played an afternoon of bowls. This apparently was so great that they decided to then spend the evening getting drunk, living up to the Mary City's name. Meaning that the next morning when Sir Thomas Fairfax attacked Waver's force, which was about half the size, they were so hungover and still in their nightclothes that they couldn't direct the battle and subsequently lost despite having every advantage possible, all because of Wakefield's reputation. It's also known, is Wakefield, for having coal. The coal, while it's been present throughout Wakefield's whole existence, did not cause its growth because during the Industrial Revolution, the city used its links with the canals and the cloth industry to become a big trader in wool and grain. When it then gets linked to the rail industry, the cloth industry dies out, uh, since Leeds then becomes a transport hub for it and takes over the textile industry, which is then why mining goes from a fringe industry in 1832 to being the main employer for much of the 20th century. And it's actually in Wakefield in 1842 that we get the first ever union forming of coal workers, which is a fact which, uh, when I told my fellow co-host Rob Clark, he was simply amazed we don't celebrate more. Wakefield has also been historically the hub of governance in West Yorkshire. Uh, the town centre is dominated by buildings that were made in the 1810s to administer the whole of the rest riding areas, as was known back then. It's made up of modern political parliamentary constituencies and areas which are known as the city centre, Wakefield North, Wakefield East, Wakefield Rural, Wakefield West, the town of Horbury, meaning that it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. Now I've done a lot of talking, so we're going to get into it. And the way, main way, way this series works is we assess it from 1935 up until 2021 by who it elects, um, what happens inside these constituencies to cause these trends, what the voting records are, any notable characters, which is why we're going to start off with Rob Clark talking about the only Tory before Imran Khan in 2019 to hold the seat. 
Yes, it is a little bit before the 1935 cut-off point you've set. He was actually uh, elected in 1931. George Hillman failed to become the MP for Normanton in 1923. He failed by a very long way. But he is a figure within Wakefield. He serves on the Wakefield County Borough Council from 1926. And he was mayor for a year between 1927 and 28. So Hillman was a presence within Wakefield in his own right. In 1931, he becomes the Member of Parliament, and he is, as George says, the last Conservative representative of Wakefield until 2019, and the current incumbent that we are saddled with today. He takes over in a time where the Conservatives still have a very strong presence in Wakefield. Wakefield has, before this point, flipped uh, firstly between the Liberals and the Conservatives, and then as Labour emerges... Um, first standing in 1902 was the Labour representat uh, Representation Committee. Um, they uh, It becomes a battle between Labour and the Conservatives. Hillman is sort of the last bastion of this Tory uh, strength in Wakefield. And he's only Member of Parliament for one year. He very sadly dies of bronchitis in 1932. That's the end of Conservatism. That might be something to do with who he's replaced with, who Theo is going to take us through very kindly, Arthur Greenwood. But he... Is a very interesting character. So just before we do move on, I'll just give you his sort of background. Uh, he served in the Royal Army Medical Corps during the First World War, and he was responsible for the running of Spinola and Hamron military hospitals in Malta, as well as being a medical officer of Ledston Hall in, uh, in Yorkshire. And because of this, he was awarded an MBE. So he was a big figure, quite famous. If I'm not mistaken, that hospital in Malta is also the very same one which Clement Attlee was forced to stay at after he was wounded at Gallipoli. Well, maybe they met. I, I don't know that. I, don't I, know I that. really would love to see that meeting between two very different people. Hello, I'm the Member of Parliament for Wakefield. Um, <laughs> so, as I say, 1932, he dies of bronchitis. And there is a, a sort of irony to that in that one of his contributions to Parliament, one of the only contributions to Parliament that we could find, was him asking about what happens when a presumed candidate dies before the election. So in 1932, Labour choose their candidate, one Arthur Greenwood. He's a, a, a very interesting figure who I'm going to very kindly ask uh, Theo to take us through, if he doesn't mind. Arthur Greenwood, um, it wasn't his first position as a Member of Parliament. He was first MP for Nelson and Colne uh, between 1992 and 1931. And then when this uh, by-election came up after he lost that seat... Uh, he uh, uh, stood against um, uh, his uh, last Tory predecessor. Uh, he was a very interesting uh, person, as he was um, essentially the number two to Clement Attlee, um, most famously uh, Labour's um, Prime Minister. Um, during uh, the war coalition, he was uh, very large in the discussions of ensuring that um, the country kept fighting during World War II, um, and making sure that uh, we didn't uh, go down. He was very, very critical of uh, Chamberlain and uh, the appeasement and trying to make sure that uh, the UK stood against fascism and against the Nazis. But he also uh, acted as leader of the opposition uh, during uh, between 1942 and 1945, because at the time, during the war coalition, uh, Labour and the Conservatives and the Liberals, the, the National Liberals as they were, were all together in a coalition as not to... Uh, attack the war effort. However, um, Arthur Greenwood uh, believed, with a small group of uh, other Labour MPs, uh, thought it was important to still have opposition in Parliament to scrutinise the government's decisions and to ensure a good function of government. So he took over the role as uh, Clement Attlee's second as 
Asley. It's also during this time of Arthur Greenwood being the MP and also the outgoing Tory that Wakefield also becomes quite notable for being um, kind of also an experimental breeding ground for what will become dominant in the post-war era. Um, the council estates of uh, Lupsit and Portobello, which still stand today, were first constructed during the post-war era, the attempt to make England a land fit for heroes. Um, Wakefield also politically is very odd because, as Rob points, this this era, the 1930s going to 40s, was kind of the outgoing conservative era. And it's really reinforced that when Wakefield's first ever cinema, uh, the Prime Minister in 1924, the uh, Prime Minister uh, Ramsay MacDonald actually comes to Wakefield and gives a speech explaining how the cinema works before then leaving as a newsreel place. So it, it's um, it's certainly like kind of weirdly, we think of Leeds as kind of the capital of West Yorkshire, but even at this point when Arthur is in charge of uh, Wakefield as its MP, we see that Wakefield still very much is kind of the centre of the West Riding area. It's one of the big players politically and uh, culturally. Now, Arthur takes over as MP in 1932 and then stays it across the, um, you know, wartime effort, the post-war rebuilding, restructuring until tragically he dies in 1954. At the end of his time as an MP, we also then get new council estates at Kettlethorpe, whilst um, the Heath power station is opened, which I believe was kind of located at the bottom of the Abergaria, because at this point the coal uh, production becomes more efficient after it's nationalised, and they find new seams to tap into and create new um, areas. So in this kind of like 1950s Macmillan era growth, I'm going to let everyone come back in and talk about Wakefield's new MP. Yeah, we have a, a new a new boy in town. 1954 rolls around, and as you say, Arthur Greenwood sadly dies. He's no longer a member of Parliament. He's replaced by a man called Arthur Creech Jones. And just as Theo was telling us that Arthur Greenwood's first sort of stint wasn't in Wakefield, neither is Arthur Creech. And in fact, a, a great many of the things that make this man fascinating happened while he's member of Parliament for Shifley, not Wakefield. He's got quite an uneventful time at Wakefield, it must be said. So he was the member of Shifley from 1935 to 1950. And he was called the unofficial member of the, uh, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, the Kikuyu in Westminster. And they're an ethnic group native to central Kenya. And the reason that he gained this nickname for himself is that he took what perhaps was an unexpected interest in colonial affairs. And he was a massive proponent of the colonies eventually becoming self-sufficient, independent nations, which obviously put him in massive contrast with the vast majority of members of parliament at that time. So he becomes part of the of the government. He's the vice chairman of the Commission on Higher Education for West Africa, which he set up in 1943. Again, part of his credentials as being a big anti-colonialist man interested in the development of, of these nations. A slightly sort of less massive grand scale thing is that in 1939, he introduced a private members bill called the Access to Mountains Bill, which was about having access to rambling areas and places that you could walk across the country. If you enjoy a walk, you can thank uh, Arthur Creech Jones in part for that particular treat. He then lost his seat in Shipley, 1950. After serving in the Attlee government, he loses his seat. And his first port of call was not Wakefield. It was Bristol South East, where he lost the selection to Tony Benn. Uh, and, I, you know, Tony Benn, of course, never did anything of consequence. He's, he's a complete nobody. So, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll never talk about Tony Benn again. He then turns up, Arthur Greenwood's dead, he becomes the Member of Parliament for Wakefield. It's worth noting in the by-election, nothing changes from the result in the last general election. There is a 0.014% change in how people vote in that particular by-election. So Creech Jones is in, and he doesn't really do anything at all after this point. 
and it, it's it, the, the one thing I found that he does is that in 1961 he signed a letter that expressed discomfort at the application to join the European community. So that's kind of his his deal after uh, he becomes MP for Wakefield and stops all this exciting stuff about the colonies. Perhaps because at this point an awful lot of them had gone independent. He was a delegate at the first ever UN General Assembly and he briefly was in charge of the British mandate in Palestine. So this is a guy who has done very big things. Uh, and, and when he becomes member of parliament for Wakefield, it's sort of at the end of his career. And in 1964, he's forced to stand down due to ill health. And he actually dies, sadly, in 1964 as well. A larger than life character, it has to be said. He, a fascinating man. This also marks the beginning of Wakefield's MPs kind of having this trend of kind of r- arriving in Wakefield towards the tail end of their careers. Because we've had one who's died in office. We've got one who died shortly after leaving office because he was forced to stand down due to ill health. And... As we're about to get into, we've then got one who stands for a very long time, um, which is, of course, um, Walter Harrison. Uh, now, um, Theo, just before we jump into that, have you got anything you want to throw onto Arthur Creech Jones? Well, no, all I'd say about uh, Arthur Creech Jones, I think, is it, his role, I think, was another example of how Wakefield has had extraordinary MPs. And I think if you look at many constituencies, you'll find that uh, you'll have many in a row of low profile, of low consequence, whereas Wakefield is really uh, fascinating in the fact that uh, MP after MP after MP have had such an impact, have had such a sort of um, effect on the uh, UK politics rather than just local politics. Mm, it's, that's true, yeah. I mean, the, the two in a row, really brilliant. Both called Arthur, but, and, and they're, they're both... <laughs> Brilliant. I, I was reading up on Arthur Creech Jones and I just did not expect to to find out all this insane stuff that this man was doing. Like the, the unofficial member of the Kicker U in Westminster is, is, is a fantastic. And I'm, I imagine he wore that with a, a fair degree of pride as well. I, I must also throw in that um, for factional purposes within the Labour Party currently, he was a Fabian, which makes me very happy. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff with the Fabians, yeah. yeah he, set, he set up the Fabian colonial um, essay circuit, didn't he? he yeah, he did. He, he, uh, when he actually takes uh, Wakefield as his seat, he continues to, to do this. In, a, in addition to, uh, it mentioned he'd had front bench roles still. It didn't go into any detail about what those front bench roles No, um, I must admit in my own cursory research for this, when, I, when you try and um, find out further information, when a small point gets made, it's impossible to track it out because... Um, the the sources we have for this kind of stuff just don't really go anywhere because at the time it wasn't deemed noteworthy enough to respond and so now it's just lost the history what the hell happened as well just since we're now in the 60s the early 60s in Wakefield is mostly marked by this continuing affluence due to the um, fact that the heavy industry is still booming you've got this conjunction of different collieries and um power plants which are then working alongside um still a lot of industry within like textiles and engineering which kind of all network together um but the first thing which negatively impacts it does come in the 60s just around about the time that walter harrison comes along which is the 1964 beaching cuts they will be uh, removed from the wakefield train circuit uh, lines which ran from osset to the city center which connected the outlying uh, villages of Crigleston and hay um, along with a line which used to go to Bradford via Dewsbury and Batley. 
Now, these things may seem very inconsequential to, you know, modern days and such, but given the fact that at this point in time, bus networks were still a catastrophe and the tram network had been gone from Wakefield for about 30 years at this point, the beaching cuts do affect like how people commute and stuff. And it means that these um, communities become more reliant on what's there for work, which is the coal industries, which definitely won't be a consequence 20 years down the line, which I'm not going to get into now. But we, we now get into, in 1964, seeing the election of Walter Harrison. And does, um, Theo, do, would you want to add anything about him? Yeah, well, Walter Harrison, I think, is fascinating. We've adopted him as an unofficial mascot of... Uh, Wakefield District Young Labour because of the sort of principles he represents and uh, what he's most famous for and I'm sure we're going to get into it of how as a Labour MP he was instrumental in the fall of a Labour government but it was because of his principles of wanting to honour a, a gentleman's agreement that he made as Deputy Chief Whip. I, I mean well, I, there's probably going to be some debate about this to be had in the comment section of this podcast but but was it admirable to do so, or was it a foolish move which meant Callaghan had no <laughs> chance of winning election? I'm, I'm sure, again, this will be as contentious as uh, many things in politics. The Callaghan government already at this point was on a knife edge. Um, it had had defections, it had had MPs who had uh, faked their own death and ran away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, that, sorry. Oh, yeah. After all these comedy of things happening, the Callaghan government was deadlocked. So a vote of no confidence was brought. Now, uh, before he was Speaker, uh, Sir Bernard Wetherill um, was the Conservative whip, uh, and uh, Deputy Chief Whip was Walter Harrison. There was an MP uh, that was brought at death's door to, to Parliament, and he was in the back of um, an old left style ambulance. And they weren't sure if he were alive or dead, but he was in the parliamentary grounds. So um, Bernard Wetherall accepted the vote, even though they didn't know if he was dead or alive. So that Labour MP's vote counted, which put it on a deadlock. But because one other MP wasn't there, the vote was about to fall to the Labour government. Uh, no, so it, it would have been equal. Sir Bernard Wetherall was whipped to an MP who couldn't attend. So Sir Bernard Wetherall um, said, or offered, uh, to put his vote with the government, uh, uh, not to vote, to abstain, which would have meant the Labour government kept on. But because Walt Harrison saw that it would destroy uh, Bernard Wetherall's entire political career by supporting a, a government that he wasn't a member of the party of, Walter Harrison uh, said that he didn't have to abstain. Because of that, the Callaghan government uh, in 1979 uh, fell, uh, leading to uh, a long stint of Labour not being in government. You see, I, I read that account in, there's a, there's a fantastic book on uh, politics in the 70s called When the Lights Went Out, which is a fantastic read. And, and uh, they actually interview um, Walter Harrison just before he died, uh, talking about this in 2005. And it, it's such an incredible read. It's, it's his career in Parliament, because he's also um, behind a parliamentary first. He was rushing to whip people to get through to the voting lobbies. And just as he got into it the last second, he got his leg caught in the door which meant that the speaker counted only three quarters of him being in the lobby. So the past, the vote passed by 222 to 222 and three quarters, um, which is one of the most incredible things I think I've ever seen in parliamentary history. But we've, we've skipped forward a little bit into kind of like the late 70s territory. I just want to jump back uh, to Rob, who's done kind of a more thorough thing looking at Walter Harrison. Uh, uh, what have you got to contribute? Well, I mean, you, you've taken the two sort of big points about Walter Harrison, to be fair. He, um, he was... He was a government whip 
from 66 to 1970. So, and that, that obviously explains how he came to be uh, trapped halfway in a division lobby uh, in 1968. Mm. He's deputy chief whip as well from uh, 1974 to 1979. And obviously as that role, that's how he ends up in his interaction with uh, Bernard Weatherhill and the gentleman agreements that, that come out of that. Um, mm. It's a, a really genuinely extraordinary moment that, as Theo has said, a man of such principle releases this man from his obligation to to do something that realistically Bernard Weatherhill should have done. And the releasing of that obligation brings down an entire government and, as has been said, sweeps in an era of Thatcherism, which wouldn't be over until 1997. Extraordinary moment. And again, it's, it's the fact that uh, Wakefield's MP does it. Wakefield is one of the areas that suffers as a result of the fall of, of, of Labour in 1979, and its MP is someone who inadvertently uh, helped bring it about. Well, I've, I've done some more research on Wakefield at this time and found that whilst it did suffer immensely under the Thatcher era, it was kind of already suffering quite a bit by 1979. So in 1966, the first colliery at Old Roundwood closes. Um, which is then followed by the colliery at Crigleston closing in 1968, which is then when we get this event, which is, it's kind of buried in social history. It's called the um, the miners' strike of 1969, which was, um, it, it lasted for all of two weeks. It was basically a strike over wage negotiations. And it was the first time the miners striked um, under a Labour government because they've been very patient with Wilson, waiting for him to just get the big majority in 66 and then, trying to muddle his way through and support it. But at this point, the um, National Union of Miners was getting more militant because it wanted better conditions for its workers by any means. And this is kind of the start of it. Wakefield kind of takes part in the groundwork, which is when all of the 70,000 miner workers in Yorkshire just go on strike. And Wakefield's noted in October of that year for having a group of miners' wives who in turn refused to undertake any housework unless their husbands went back to work, um, which is an excellent detail, which I love. It's also at the strikes at Woolly Colliery, which is where we first meet Arthur Scargill, a figure who is about to become very prominent. And this is also where he develops the idea of flying strikes, which then come around in 1972 in the main strikes of that year. Um, the pit at Ackworth is the one which I found to be best documented for having like quite contentious clashes with the police. Wakefield as an area is known for having um, very bad relationships when it comes to some strikes. Like we'll, go, we'll go into this when we cover Hemsworth, but the Kinley strikes in 1905 are an example of this, where they forced an entire community of um, miners out who had um, been scabs, who had forced it. There was a lot of pit solidarity, and these unions were very good at making sure their members stayed in place and maintained the strikes. For the rest of the 70s then, whilst Walter Harrison's off forging a career in Parliament, um, the glass and textile industries began to close down over the next, uh, throughout the 70s and 80s, um, meaning then that the pit um, industry becomes more of a reliable employer, which is then, whilst between 1979 and 82, quite devastating because Wakefield constituents, people who worked inside the pits at Lofthouse, uh, at Manor, at Newmarket, Newmarket Dam, Parhill and Walton, they all lose their jobs because those pits closed between 1979 and 1982. So before we get into the 80s, would anyone like to throw anything else in? I mean, I don't, I don't really know what much more uh, to add really about that period because you've covered it very succinctly and, and Theo's given us a lot of great info about, about the Member of Parliament at the time. Hmm. I, I, would just make, I would just make one comment of, uh, due to his predecessors um, often uh, being ill or dying in office, uh, he, uh, and his last uh, speech, his valedictory speech to uh, Parliament before he retired, he said, uh, 
Uh, I am going now whilst I still have a clean bill of health, unlike my predecessors. So he did make a, a humorous reference to the fact that uh, Wakefield's MPs never had a great record with their health in office. <laughs> no, they did not. Um, Walter Harrison remains MP of Wakefield until 1987, which means he's in office during the uh, bit which, for a lot of seats which are lumped inside the Red Wall, is the most traumatic event that will happen, and we're going to talk about quite a lot throughout this whole series. The miners' strike of 1984 to 1985. Um, before we get into that, though, I wanted to pick up some notes which kind of show some interesting trends about Wakefield as a constituency. So, before and after the miners' strike, we get events that occur which are quite big developments. The first one is that throughout the 80s, Wakefield undergoes a period of consultation and agitation to get a hospice made for the hospital, which I actually live across the road from. This hospice is built and it still stands today and is actually quite a vocal point of community um, unity. Every year, the mayor of Wakefield will come out and they'll host like a sing-along thing to raise funds for it. And it's kind of throughout the whole Wakefield district scene is like this, this thing which... Um, people were glad to give money to it. it's an admirable cause and I, I found that quite interesting that when you see this period where people you know get their commu the community ripped from them with the coal mining that it still perseveres in another way which i thought was fascinating and then you also get the development of the riding center um which then begins wakefield's transition from being uh, mostly having people working inside of heavy industry and manufacturing to working in retail, um, but I've done enough dithering and dancing around it now. Let's talk miners' strike. Um, Theo, what have you? What would you like to add? The miners' strike is very much still felt today. In when you talk to people, when uh, at any time politics comes up, or even just if you uh, look at the um, old um, miners' communities that often have support groups around, especially the towns um, of. Uh, Pontefract, Castleford, Normington. Mm. There's a lot of ex-miners there that still feel the pain today um, because of how monumental it was about how a lot of these towns, uh, pit towns um, around Wakefield and within Wakefield sort of got disconnected then and in a way haven't sort of had the same sense of community since. And I think it, it did do some permanent damage to the sort of relationship that people had with each other and uh, how, especially how they, uh, the people view the political parties in relation to that. I mean, it's kind of succinct that in former places like Charleston, um, there's still elect Labour MPs to this day, even though the turnout in like, local elections, as Rob no doubt will pick up, being the fact he's Mr. Statistics, um, the turnout is usually dreadful, but these areas where the miners live, these like towns which were just built for the mines, which then just were gone, they, they still don't trust the Tories to this day. And uh, that that whole narrative has kind of been shaped a lot by what happened in 2019. But for some of these areas, that still rides true, as mm. I'm sure Rob will tell me. Well, I'm glad you call me Mr. Statistics, because I do actually have a statistic for 1980s. Oh. Um, we've, we've kind of, in our sort of modern minds, we think now Wakefield is the closest it's ever been. And I think a lot of us expected that 2017 was the closest it had ever been and people in 2010 thought it's the closest it's ever been the closest it has ever ever been was in 1983 and there were a series of boundary changes and the tories really went for wakefield so 1983 it was a majority of just 0.76 percent it was a, a really wafer thin majority a very very narrow victory for the labor party so um just sort of as we go forward we see the majority changes but that that urge and that tendency to consider conservatism never truly left Wakefield from 1931. 
it's just Labour offered enough that the people stayed loyal to it. And in 1983, it comes really close to flipping. Labour was also assisted by the fact that in, throughout the whole of the 80s, the um, SDP were the only real third-party option. Yeah, the the Liberals, yeah. which we, uh, we've kind of avoided talking about because they don't really play much of a role in anything to do with Wakefield's electoral history. The Liberal no, Party... They, um, they're, they're responsible early on for some of Labour's, Labour's victories. I'll try and find it uh, here. In 1929, Labour took the seat, almost exclusively down to the fact the Liberal Party stood in the seat because mm. um, they sucked up a lot of the sort of wayward Tory vote. The SDP, as you say, they stand. In 1983, it's the highest, in the period that we're looking at anyway, it's the highest a third party's ever scored in Wakefield. The SDP achieved 19.3% in 1983. So third parties, they don't massively register, which is why we're talking about Tories and Labour, because that, that sort of third yeah. option is never massively present in Wakefield. And then following on from 1983, I mean, the, the period between the, the, the final parliament of Walter Harrison is the most traumatic for Wakefield, because as we've talked about, the minor strike happens. And whilst we've talked, you know, kind of how it affects them, I do have some specific examples because um, my, well, I think it's the same for everyone in Wakefield. But I, you know, my parents were alive during it and they've, they've given me some examples of it. Um, the Arriba Depot and the bin men went into solidarity strikes with the miners for about a month, um, meaning that some services were in Wakefield just kind of ground to a halt during it. This came after, in December of 1983, quite extensive and bad flooding, which really hit the region hard. Walter Harrison in Parliament does focus on the flooding because the issue with the miners' strike for a lot of Labour MPs was because of the fact this wasn't a balloted thing, they can't interact with it politically. So you don't see that many MPs sticking their heads above the parapet except for your Tony Benz and your people who are like we're probably going to cover when we do Hemsworth people who've really got a vested interest in this strike winning because it's basically all the, the community has so Walter Harrison tries to fight the fight in parliament by sorting out these flooding things and writes to various secretaries of state asking about flooding um, and how he can get funds to fix it all and he gets bounced around from various quango to committee and then telling him that if they want funds that another body's got to recommend it. And I feel really bad for him because he's, he's trying his hardest to sort out things for his constituency as things go from bad to worse. The situation in Wakefield by the end of the strike in places like Kettlethorpe was that people were just surviving because of the fact that the butchers and the grocers and such, they had um, ran up for the people who, you know, the striking miners' families, those families had run up enormous debt um, on slates and stuff just purely out of goodwill. If it wasn't for these kind of extreme circumstances of, like, you know, charity and what have you, these communities would have genuinely faced famine. It was really traumatic for the entire area and something that kind of lived with people, even, like, because whilst they don't live inside a constituency, most of the constituency school had kids from mining areas who were reliant on, like, um, free school dinners, which I'm not going to lie, they were not good at the time. They they were really not good from the records we've got, which then takes us to after the um, traumatic end of the miners' strike. We then see throughout the rest of the 80s, the mining communities slowly just closing down. By the end of the 80s, it's no longer the largest employer. And then by 1995, the final active colliery's closed down in Wakefield. It, it's such a really painful and consequential thing that happens in the constituency which is then why when we get to 1987 and the election of its new NP we then see that Wayfield shoot back up don't we Rob? Well David Kinchcliffe is a break from the mould that we've seen so far in the sort of larger than life very 
sort of high scale activities being done by our representatives in Wakefield, we get David Hinchcliffe, who is the founder of the All Parliamentary Rugby League Group in 1988. And on the on the surface of things, that's that's a very odd thing for someone to do, but there, there is a reason for it. And he he himself had been involved in rugby league, and he was impacted by a bizarre law that meant if you were involved in rugby league, you could not play rugby union at all. There was just, uh, something apparently meant that you couldn't play it. So the all-parliamentary rugby league group was uh, founded and did manage to get this bizarre rule changed. It also made it possible to play rugby league in the British Army, which was also banned for whatever reason. I assume because of the uh, the physicality that you don't want your soldiers going out to war, having already been beaten up by each other. But... Um, it's not that we've talked about Creech Jones. We've talked about, um, you know, the last Walter Harrison. Walter Harrison, that's it. Forgive me. Walter Harrison, we've spoken about. Hinchcliffe is a completely different kind of representative. The sort of biggest thing he does is he led the inquiry by the Health Select Committee into the welfare of former British child migrants after a book is released. And that results in 2010, a formal apology being given by the British government to. Uh, former British child migrants. So from what I can tell, Hinchcliffe has a, a very relaxed sort of time as, as, as the representative for Wakefield. He certainly doesn't bring any governments down, but the stuff he does matters to the communities that they're impacted by. It's because rugby league is a big thing in the north of England. I think, and It's the lifeblood of yeah. um, Wakefield culture. Yeah, Wakefield's got its own team. It's, it's a big thing. So I suppose some people will have scoffed when you hear that he's, you know, the biggest thing he's sort of remembered for is being the founder of the all-parliamentary rugby league group. And and given some of the company he holds, you know, Arthur Greenwood, Clement Alley's right-hand man, uh, Creech Jones, who did all these brilliant things in the colonial office and, and stuff like that. And then Harrison, who brought down his own government, you've got Hinchcliffe in there as well. But he was a much more community-focused kind of guy. He he did what he, he set out to do, I think. So, And the voters certainly rewarded him, didn't they, with majorities which had nothing to be sniffed at? No, he, he was fairly safe. Fairly safe. 2005, when he leaves, is, is when you start to see the vote decline. But he's yes. gone by that point. He well, let's, let's before, we, before we move on to 2005 and the arrival of Mary Cray, should we talk to Fear about David Hinchcliffe? Like, do you have much that you want to contribute? Well, what's interesting about David Hinchcliffe is that if you uh, doorknock or ring around Wakefield, his name will still come up. He is remembered still as the sort of the Wakefield's man. He actually, uh, his big focus was always on the constituency, not in Westminster, and uh, as represented in what he did in Parliament. But uh, even today, uh, he um, gets mentioned as a community man and someone who got things done locally, uh, which I think um, uh, some MPs, um, sort of see it as a choice. You either do a lot in Westminster or you would do a lot in your constituency. And I think he very much was on the side of he was elected by Wakefield to help them. I would say that out of the, the, the crop of MPs that we're discussing in this first episode, that I do believe that David Hinchcliffe probably is like the most backbench style one that we're going to see out of this whole selection, um, just because it's, it's hard to comment on um, Imran Khan yet, just because he's only been in the job for two years. But 
I find it interesting that even when we've got like this quite you know low backbench member such as David Hitchcock, he still goes out of his way to do stuff such as leading the health inquiry about child migrants and um, actually working to try and get like a law repealed. Like he doesn't just you know sit back. So I I, I think he, in my personal um, assessment of him, I think he did obviously was quite community focused, but still when he wanted to could flex his muscles in Parliament and get stuff done. And we see this because even you know his obviously his best selection result is in. 1997 like a lot of mps which means that the only way is down but this is part of a whole national trend so wakefield still is relatively you know comfortable labor not safe labor but comfortable labor which is then in 2005 when we are introduced to mary cray who i'm going to turn again to fear do you want to introduce mary cray uh, yeah definitely but I, I think i'm certainly biased in that i've met mary cray and that um I, I was there on that fateful day when she uh, lost her seat in the counting hall um, but I was always fascinated by Mary. She, she is an extra, extraordinarily impressive woman, speaks five languages, um, has done amazing things in her career, but she didn't start her political career in Wakefield. She was um, the leader of the Labour group of Islington Council, and uh, she was very much a, a London uh, councillor and uh, did a lot of work down there. So when she moved up to Wakefield, uh, to contest the seat, it did come as uh, to allegations of being parachuted in, of uh, the, the the general sort of uh, po uh, politicking that goes on, uh, goes along with that sort of thing. But when she was in Parliament, uh, she was uh, she was very much environmentally focused. M Mary served uh, in the shadow cabinets at the time. She um, was always a prominent person and al always touted as someone who could. Uh, take on uh, the leadership, uh, although she uh, never made a, a, a serious attempt. In 2015, she did announce that she would um, contest it, uh, but stood down after uh, Liz Kendall and Yvette Cooper stood, uh, Yvette Cooper being uh, the constituency, over to her. Um, but she did resign uh, from the front bench in 2015, along with many others. But um, her big focus was always the environment. And she was the chair of the Environmental Audit Committee. Uh, and uh, still today, she works uh, with a charity uh, called Living Streets, which is all about road safety and improving um, the environmental safety of roads. Um, so it's always been a passion of hers. And uh, she has a really good podcast herself, not to draw listeners away from this one um, that uh, she uh, used to do. Um, and I'm not sure if she still does it. Uh, but uh, yeah, she her focus was always on the environment. Um, however, um, she was also one of the biggest advocates for Remain and a second referendum, which I'm sure we'll get to, was one of the big things that may have uh, led to her downfall. Well, we're going to get into that in just a second, um, which I'll turn to Rob to in a second. But just before that, I also just want to bring the final round of kind of these updates of what the constituency looks like in. So. Um, following on from the 90s, just immediately when we get into it, following Black Wednesday and such, there is just a humongous economic slump. Turns out that getting rid of the main employer of the constituency for the last 10 years, and then also combining that with just an appalling economy and economic conditions, really bad. There's a lot of widespread unemployment throughout the constituency, um, which is then also paired with the main power plant and abric closing down, the end of the final you know, uh, heavy industry elements of the constituency. But then in 1998, up until 2003, we see this humongous jump of about 12% in employment. 
as um, retail becomes more of a big employer, uh, because things like the ridings have been such a commercial success, um, it was actually known that people would come around and just actually stare at the glass uh, lift, which used to be in the riding shopping centre, which I don't know what that says about Wakefield as a place. Its main attraction was a, a elevator, but, you, you know, it, it was good. We then get the 2001 census, which I found fascinating because it showed that despite this growth, Wakefield was still suffering from a higher rate of unemployment, um, part-time employment, and had a higher degree of retirees than the West Yorkshire average and the English average. We also see that by 2001, retail has become the highest employer in the city, alongside manufacturing, which will continue to decline up until the modern day. We see fewer and fewer, and things such as the old chemical works in Castleford, which at one point did supply napalm to the American government. Those all closed down around about the mid-noughties. It's... Um, very much that retail becomes the big employer alongside health and social care and transport industries. But it's also noteworthy that in 2001, 39% of adults in the constituency recorded with no academic qualifications, uh, which is a full 10% higher than the average of England at the time. And then in a more recently, uh, just as one final thing, in 2015, the index of multiple deprivation found that 14.35% of Wakefield's outer districts, these towns which used to have the coal inside of it, were in the upper 10% of the most deprived areas across all of England. So with that, you've kind of got this recipe of, I don't know, sort of the fact that the main employers are retail, the fact that the adult population suffers from having a bit of a brain drain in terms of population that lives there, and also the fact that there is still quite a lot of systemic poverty. Um, I'm just going to throw over to Rob if you want to contribute anything before we talk about the fall of Mary Cray. I think her fall is is sadly intrinsically linked with Labour's image as it goes along. As Theo says, right from the beginning, despite how blatantly well-educated she was and how very good as a representative she was, the fact that she came from London started it poorly for her. And there's nothing she can do about that. She can't change the fact she's from London. But something that Theo did say about the the Remain thing, that has to be intrinsically linked with just how unpopular Mary became within Wakefield. And it's a very sad state of affairs because Mary Cree, as an MP, that rhymes, look at that. Poet doesn't even know it. But she, as, she, uh, as she goes on, she's overtly pro-Remain in a constituency and in a, in a, a voting area uh, that isn't. Wakefield was very, very pro-Leave and it voted as such. It, it it wasn't a remain place and you see that in the in the elections after elections like UKIP 18.3 percent in 2015 came really out of nowhere barely registering in the elections before that but that massive Eurosceptic vote was in Wakefield and as we've spoken about she was a big figure for remain so much so that change UK approached her to join when they splintered from the Labour Party she you know thankfully rejected it because then she really would have stood no chance of taking the seat for, uh, for herself, but Remain versus Leave in Wakefield was a big deal, and the idea that Wakefield as a massive Leave area was represented by someone who wasn't going to vote in that manner, I think for a lot of residents and voters in Wakefield, was just too big to reconcile with. That is certainly the case. I mean, personally, like when the Brexit referendum came about, my thought was always on the Europort and the fact that, as we see from trends, transport and like actual hauling stuff is becoming a bigger and bigger employer across the region which would be well it has been impacted by brexit at the time we weren't too sure of the consequences of that and whilst i personally think it's quite admirable that mary cray stood by her principles and wanted to remain to kind of stop um things being affected in that manner it 
it's kind of impossible not to draw the links as to what happened mm. in 2019. Um, yeah. Now, I also I believe that you might have some more statistics for us in terms of talking about that creeping Tory vote. Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we do. 2010 sees the second lowest margin between the two parties in the sort of period of time we've spoken about. At least I, I think so. Uh, we've got 3.7% between the two parties in uh, 2010. Uh, that goes, that rises to quite high in 2015. The, the majority stabilises. 2017, that sort of time that we always, at least I always did, associated with Wakefield teetering on the very edge. Uh, as I've said, nowhere near cl as close as 1983 and actually less close than 2010. It was a 4.7% majority for her there. Um, so not safe by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly not as in peril as we, as we spoke about. Speaking of sort of creeping votes, George, I know you, you were keen for me to try and find this stuff out. The far right doesn't have a massive foothold within Wakefield. Uh, the National Front stand in 1979 and they barely register 1%. The BNP stand, I think, in 1983 and they do below 1%. It's only really in this early 2000s that the BNP sort of make inroads. 2.7% in, uh, I think, either 2001 uh, or 2005, was it? And uh, yeah. yeah, and that rises to 5.8% in 2010. And that's the absolute peak of the BNP's political involvement in the constituency of Westminster. I'm not entirely sure about how it was at a local council level, but in terms of the constituency, they never break beyond 5.8%. So it's, it's got, it's, Wakefield does lean to the right in some ways, but it certainly doesn't lean that far to the right. It's an interesting place. It's a very interesting constituency in that it's, it has got a reputation, sadly, for being the sort of place where those movements would thrive. And they don't, they simply don't thrive. And I think anyone who says, well, what about the UKIP vote? You've got, to, you've got to contend with the fact that 2015 UKIP is fundamentally different even from 2017 UKIP. And he's certainly fundamentally different from where modern UKIP is now. So that 2015 vote was built, I'd argue, around Euroscepticism and, you know, sticking it to the establishment more than it was any leaning to the far right. Hmm. So statistically, in that sort of period of time, that's where you're looking at. And also in that period of time, just as a, as a, a side fact, 2005, Alex Shelbrook stood in Wakefield unsuccessfully shortly before he was uh, moved off to the new seat of Elmer and Rothwell in 2010, which he won and holds to this day. I'm very pleased that you mentioned him because I was just about to bring up, just to bring us to 2019, what happened there. I wanted to bring up the fact that actually the election of 2019 in Wakefield is very weird, even by the standards of that weird point between Brexit being voted in and then the deal being signed in. Like, this is weird even by that standard. So, the originally in 2019, the Tory candidate was a chap called uh, Anthony Calvert, who had stood in 2010, 2015, 2017, and kind of slowly had been building on little gains here and there, but still was about 2,000 short of winning. Now, he was preparing for a fourth attempt at the seat when he was forced to step down over historic social media posts. And namely, I've got it here. He um, said that um, if Colonel Gaddafi, the former Libyan dictator, wanted to walk the streets and recognised, he surely would have fled to Bradford. Um, yeah, Horrible which is... Thing to say. He also... Wow. Yeah, he, he kind of was part of this wave of candidates who stood down around about the same time in early November 2019 because he stood down just days after another Tory candidate told... Um, people that so he posted historically women should keep the knickers on in a conversation about rape so it really this was 
kind of thrown the Tory election strategy completely off course because Anthony had kind of made a bit of a name for himself and the constituency and was known and they kind of thought this would be one more heave when you then get Imran Khan parachuted in. Uh, if I remember correctly, he did parachute out of a plane to prove the fact that he's a parachute candidate, which I think Theo probably is more well-informed to talk about the 2019 election than I. I'd just say there were one more comment that uh, forced him to stand down. He um, Mary Cray appeared on TV and he tweeted out that uh, clearly the BBC's makeup department was not working on that Sunday, which uh, was just, uh, I think that that one was when people started looking back at his historic social media and found out some of the horrible things he had been saying. But what's actually interesting about Imran is he's not a parachute candidate. He did that to prove he wasn't. Hmm. Uh, so he was actually born in Wakefield, has family from Wakefield. He, he actually has some uh, quite famous family members um, from uh, peace envoys to working for the United Nations. Um, but uh, Imran, uh, Mary Cray um, described him in the election as uh, just another one parachuted in. Uh, so he decided to uh, parachute from a helicopter uh, down into the fields of Wakefield. <laughs> it's it's mad, isn't it? Just that the, the, that went off in this election. So you had this brand new candidate who, of course, rode the Boris wave and was elected in, and Wakefield turned conservative for the first time in 87 years. Um, any, anything you want to throw in there, Rob? Any numbers or anything? Uh, not really, statistics-wise, no. Um, the 2019 election, it, it felt inevitable from an outside perspective. When we were looking for the seats that were going to flip, Wakefield was right up there. I, I seem to seem to remember on, on 2017, um, one of the seats that they had a flash up as blue, if, if anyone can remember uh, back to the election broadcast the BBC did, they have all the panels with the seat names that flip from red to blue or whichever corresponding colour of the party that win. Wakefield flips to blue, Rothwell, for some bizarre reason, flipped to red, and neither of those results were accurate. But it was it was almost a given and it was an assumption that even from 2017 onwards that Wakefield next election would go conservative. And it's a very tragic thing, but no one I know who was politically interested in that general election was surprised Wakefield went the way it did. And it's a great tragedy, but that's that's the, the fact of the matter. Does that kind of see what happened on the ground, Theo? I mean, obviously, you know, you, you, you're the best person to know on the panel. Yeah, uh, definitely. But I think I just mentioned one more thing that was quite interesting about his campaign of when he won, um, all the newspapers declared he was the first ever elected uh, gay Muslim MP uh, to ever have been elected in the world when he wasn't gay. Because no, he, he had a family. Uh, yes, uh, he had applied to LGBT conservatives for funding for LGBT candidates. So they put out a press release saying that he's the first uh, LGBT Muslim uh, legislator in the world, and he had to apologise and give the money back, because he wasn't. Oh, my Lord. Um, uh, yeah, um, in terms of on the ground, two things hit that really hard in that election, and I think you can say that about the country rather than just Wakefield, because of how disastrous that election was. It was um, the perception of uh, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and of Brexit. And especially uh, Brexit, especially hard in Wakefield, especially because of uh, Mary's image and her passion for a, another second, uh, a second referendum, and to remain in the EU. So, since since Imran's election, what has actually happened in Wakefield, and what what do you think will happen? Because it's been very difficult to tell. Because we we should have immediately after the 2019 election had the 2020 local elections, which would have told us any trends or 
just further consolidate the wipeout for Labour, but then we didn't have them because of the pandemic, and now we're approaching big elections for the first time. Um, I'm kind of wondering, what, what do you think is going to happen? Like, what has happened since Imran got elected? What's interesting is, for these local elections, the Conservatives still haven't announced a single candidate in the Wakefield district. They really? haven't announced they have not announced a single candidate for a local election in the Wakefield district yet, which is very interesting because you would have assumed that taking the parliamentary seat, there would be in full force candidates at the ready to have a big social media presence to be campaigning. They haven't announced anyone yet, which I found foolish rather than anything. Of uh, They've announced their candidate for mayor of West Yorkshire just recently. Yes. Um, we, we on a recent episode of Waiting for Dissipation, we cut, we touched on uh, Council Robinson and his vast unknownness, and also the fact that the only press coverage he's had was a former Tory Party PR operator telling him people to vote for Tracy Brabin. Yeah, I, I will ask. Do you know what his first name is, Theo? Because we're stumped. We have no idea what Councillor Robinson's first name actually is. It's Matthew, isn't it? Is it Matthew? Right. Matthew. There we go. There we go. There we go. I only know that I'm on Tracy's campaign team. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we, we, we do want to talk about the future, and one of the most sort of upcoming things is the mayoral election. Now, as George said, we spoke about it on, on sort of what is the main uh, podcast the channel does, um, this sort of waiting for salvation. I said I thought that choosing Councillor Robinson, I'm not going to call him Matthew, I refuse at this point, um, as the candidate made very little sense, given that it just seemed the Tories were giving up in West Yorkshire, when places like Wakefield seem like they can be won. So I just want to sort of ask you, is Tracy playing well in Wakefield, do you think? Do you think she will do well in Wakefield come the actual vote? I, I think she will. And I, I, I'm not actually sure how if the votes will be released by local authority or just as a combined, or uh, I'm, I'm not sure on the details of it, but certainly on phone banking, she's getting a very good reception. Mm -hmm. um, and also, she's making sure that her policies are, because uh, the new mayor's powers will be very broad, and she's making sure she's, uh, like, in, in the first couple of years, she's ruled out a mayoral precept, uh, so um, her powers to raise taxes, she said she's not going to, um, because of uh, the already increased two council tax that the Conservatives are forcing through. Um, so uh, she is, I think she is playing very well, and the fact that, as you, you two are very interested in politics and couldn't remember the first name of the Conservative candidate, which doesn't bode well. One thing that has been worrying across the district is the Yorkshire Party, because really? nationally they are the largest party that uh, politically that uh, didn't get a seat um, other than the Brexit Party. Mm. Um, and they are making inroads and nearly won four council seats. Uh, last year, and they're actually running a very strong campaign for the mayor of West Yorkshire. I don't think they'll be able to win. I still think that Tracy will win in quite a big margin, but I think they're also a, sort of a third party that are breaking through in Wakefield. That is, that is very... I'm glad you said that, because uh, and the, I think George slumped back genuinely stunned and probably in fear of the fact that he knows that I absolutely love talking about the Yorkshire party, because I find their entrance into local politics fascinating. Um, uh, we've spoken about on the, on Wait for Salvation how I thought they might have a breakthrough in sort of South Yorkshire in their mayoral contest. I'm very interested to find out that there might even be a breakthrough in 
in West Yorkshire. I, I had absolutely no idea they were doing that well in, in Wakefield. That's quite exciting from a... Well, it's exciting for you, Rob. It's, yeah, it's not as boring as me. That's quite exciting. But... Not only that, it's, it's, it's fine for you for someone who doesn't have to deal with the consequences of those people being elected and seeing them on exactly. the councils. Yes. There is one thing that is worth mentioning, that their deputy leader, um, who ran for the Yorkshire Party in Normanton, Pontefract and Casford, Flora Walker, she has just defected to the Conservatives. Oh, God. Um, what is she? She started off in UKIP. Didn't she? Um, she's never stood for UKIP. I don't know if she was a member. Oh. Um, it's going to require some live research, my uh, audience. Um, yeah, uh, yeah uh, Laura Walker. Um, she, um, uh, we, uh, she has actually moved to Pontefract, so we're expecting her to be one of the Conservative candidates there, um, which would be of great concern, especially with the margins. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's been very interesting of how in Wakefield, the city, and the wards in Wakefield, uh, and to an extent in um, some of the. Uh, towns around it there's been a breakthrough in other ways that the Yorkshire party has sort of been crumbling where sort of key figures have defected to the conservatives yeah so a, a cursory google search town tells me that Laura Worker did not stand for UKIP but actually was involved with the Brexit party in the uh, EU elections back in uh, May 2019 which means that th there's a bit of political um, maneuvering going off all over the place um, I do, I do find the Yorkshire Party quite fascinating, and uh, especially just because of the fact it's, well, it, it's a regionalist party which has the potential to do well. It's just a very weird political coalition they've kind of assembled for themselves. And I, I wasn't too aware of the fact they were close to making inroads in Wakefield. And if, if I might press you further on that, um, of course, everything's GDPR compliant and we live in a democracy where you're allowed to vote and uh, support whoever you want. Is there any particular areas which seem to it? Because in my mind, my first instinct is going, that's Osset. That's Osset, which is absolutely trying to back the Yorkshire party. It's, 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 actually, it's very interesting, um, because Osset especially, where um, the, the incumbent, I am just getting the figures up, I do apologise. No, not a problem at all. <laughs> um, but uh, she actually lives just around the corner from me, uh, the Labour candidate, um, uh, called Lynn Masterman. Uh, so she's the only Labour incumbent in the seat because the last two have been won by Conservatives. Um, but what's interesting is that if we look back to her last election, the Yorkshire Party haven't stood there for a while. But I, I think they're going to do something like they did in Nottingley, uh, Ward with the Liberal Democrat. Uh, he um, did a 40-point swing from Labour to the Lib Dems and got in in a landslide and is pushing for his new candidate is his mum. So he's getting his mum elected to the council. Um, um, but what's interesting, the Yorkshire party is around Osset and Horbury. We've also seen when we've been calling a Horbury area, there yeah. has been some, um, however, that is very diehard conservative anyway. So it, it's, it wouldn't make an effect on Labour. You um, see, but it, it, we've not really talked about the councils throughout this recording because that would make this thing two hours long and I don't want to subject anyone to that. But um, in terms of Wakefield's electoral history, it's Horbury and kind of these more rural wards towards Osset where you get some very interesting results in the council elections because um, Wakefield North, East, and to an extent parts of Wakefield West return reliably wait, you know, Labour areas. Wakefield South tends to be conservative dominated in places like Abbrake. And then 
Berber, Wakefield, West, you get very weird results. Um, I believe UKIP, the BMP, various independents have won seats there uh, time and time again. It's um, a very much an electoral hodgepodge. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think th the big question will be is, does Kistama go um, have a good view? Because at the current uh, sort of st uh, statistics we're getting through at the regional level are positive, but they're not overwhelmingly positive. So it's it's mixed opinion, but very much more positive of views of the leadership than in 2019. Um, so we, we're getting we are getting more positive, but the big question will be: Do people still not trust Labour because of Brexit? And that that's a, a question that only the next election can decide. Mm. So we're going to come to the end of the podcast there. Before we go, I just wanted to read out some things because before we started recording, I asked people for their favourite facts about Wakefield. Now, uh, this has been excellent. Um, we've had some very good ones. One person did pick up on what I mentioned at the start, that the Royalist commander of Wakefield lost control of the city because he was hungover. Um, we've also got the fact that Charles, um, he was the one who actually founded the world's first nature reserve at Waterston Hall in Walton, which is an amazing place to go to. It's basically like a country hall on a little island, and um, it's fascinating. Um, the... Another fact is the fact that the electoral map of the council re re resembles Donald Trump. In fact, yes, after the uh, Lib Dem uh, made the hair. <laughs> yes. Um, Brandon Green, host of the Left Wingers, uh, has said that Jay McDonald is a national treasure, and that's a fact. That is a fact which my mum will never agree with because she despises Jay McDonald. And finally, to round off, the fact that Wakefield is a city and Huddersfield is a town, despite Huddersfield being twice the size of Wakefield. And having a but university. Does what, sorry, George? Does Huddersfield have a cathedral? Mm, no, because that, a that, would make it, that would make it a city. I think it has a minster, and it has a... To, to be a city, you have to have a cathedral. So I think that's one of the requirements. I thought they changed it, though, because obviously they, they can't keep knocking up cathedrals everywhere. Although I look forward oh, to the Huddersfield Cathedral. But, um, I, I can't believe that this anti-cathedral discourse is coming off the first episode of Red Rose Roots. Just... Well, listen, I, I'm nothing. I'm not anti-cathedral. I'm just saying that maybe Kirkley's council should prioritise other areas of spending rather than slapping a cathedral in the middle of Huddersfield. Although the blueprint makes clear they're demolishing a fair portion of the middle of the town, so maybe it will be replaced by a cathedral. I'm not entirely sure uh, what the cathedral in Huddersfield that is now definitely going to happen because I've said it will happen is when it happens, I don't know what it will look like, but I'm sure it'll be magnificent. But I think, yes. we're, I think we are at the end and uh, we chose Wakefield because we thought it was the archetypal Red War seat, certainly to me and George. And it's been a fascinating situation yes. to see and a massive thank you to Theo who has brought some fantastic tidbits with him and a really insightful commentary on Wakefield as well. So thank you very much, Theo, and we hope uh, you'll, you'll be happy to come along and join us for other events that we do. You're welcome, of course, always on the Waiting for Salvation podcast if you uh, if you ever want to attend that. But uh, yeah, George, anything? Uh, well, all I've got to say is that if you've been listening to this and you're a Red Wall activist um, and you really want to talk about your home constituency because you're sick of uh, the BBC misrepresenting it, well, by God, get in contact with us. And I'll tell you where you can get in contact with us. You can find us on Facebook at Red Reporting. You can go for, to us on Twitter at Red Reporting. Or you can go to us on Instagram at Red Reporting. We've tried to make it nice and easy for you. Nice and easy, yeah. We have got people coming on to talk to us about Hemsworth. 
and uh, is it Barnsley Central? Barnsley Central and also Pontefract, Pontefract, which means we'll be talking much more minor stuff over the next few weeks. Lots of lots of mining. But if you um if you're a Red Wall uh person from anywhere in the Red Wall, by all means come and come on and talk to us. Excellent. There we go. Well, thank you for coming on, Theo, and goodbye. <laughs>